the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Toronto City Councillors voted this past week to put Ontario Place on the city's Heritage Property Register. The listing does not offer any legal protection under the Ontario Heritage Act and will serve mostly as a symbolic gesture intended to signal to the Ford PCs at Queen's Park that City of Toronto staff wants to see parts of the 155-acre park preserved. We also learned that Toronto homeowners could be in for a second tax bill as a result of unexpected budget cuts from Premier Doug Ford. Joining Libby Snymer on Wednesday to talk about these developments, City Budget Chief Councillor Gary Crawford and strategist Aleem Kanji of Sutherland Corporation. I don't think I've ever seen a situation where we are under the risk of opening up a budget that we've already passed uh, last year and because of changes that the provincial government has uh, really retroactively put on us. Um, major changes, a uh, magnitude up uh, upwards of probably $178 million at this point. Um, and they are changes that are impacted a budget that we've already passed. Uh, the city manager did bring a report to council yesterday outlining all this, and he's going to get into more detail in July when he brings forward what the potential, uh, I guess, outcomes of this could be. But when you're looking at it, uh, really, it is uh, major service cuts or, or service cuts or, or raising taxes. Uh, I could tell you one thing. I do not want to do both, nor the mayor and I both ran on a platform of keeping property taxes low. I will be doing everything I can to ensure that. But again, when you're looking at the the, the amount of changes, uh, I'm hoping that uh, the provincial government will rescind some of these changes. gives us the ability to really look at, uh, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a balanced budget. We've done it. We now need to move forward looking at 2020, and that's what we're hoping they will do. Aleem, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, and, and the municipalities, uh, and all of them across the province, you know, 400 plus municipalities are not allowed to um, uh, basically carry a deficit. They got to get ba- balance their books. By law, that is what is is required. Yeah, we know that. So, how do we balance the need for um, um, what's coming down from the province? A lot of the downloading with the fact that they've they, they've got to balance their books. And you know, are there avenues and are there ways in which um, the city uh, can look at uh, uh, at uh, at saving money? You know, there's there's been a number of uh, reports from the city's own auditor general that has uh, suggested that there there could be ways in which to save, and um, you know the the municipality Toronto will have to decide which way they want to go and and uh, how do you maintain that and how do how do we keep that quality of of service and of of, of life that we all enjoy in the city of Toronto? That's the balance that that we're trying to find. Uh, Councillor Crawford, just in a nutshell, though, I mean basically. The province says the cuts would amount to administration cuts and and basically that you're a bunch of whiners. Well, I can tell you, Libby, um, I tend to be a very fiscally responsible person, hence being the budget chief. Uh, to be able to find those kind of efficiencies are not there, especially in the timeline that they have suggested. Yes, the Auditor General has a number of uh, reports that he she has brought forward. In fact, it was a year and a half ago we increased the Auditor General's budget so she could go out and do more of uh, finding efficiencies. So I'm totally on board with that. The challenge, of course, is a lot of the recommendations she has put forward do take time. Uh, 
you can't do, I don't think there's anything that you could do in, in a couple of months that would have the kind of impact that we need to balance a budget that is already balanced. When do you expect that we will have a resolution on this? Well, the, I do know the city manager will be bringing a report in July. That's a couple of months from now. Uh, but my hopes is is through our conversations uh, with the province that they will look at you know these kind of changes and the impacts of the 2019 budget. Listen, as soon as we can do that, I'll be sitting down with the city manager and the mayor uh, in the next couple of days to start figuring out how we you know how we deal with this. I'm actually opening up our our budget cycle uh, starting next week to really figure out what we do. So I'm hoping that through the dialogue that uh, has been happening the last couple of days that the province will at least deal with the 2019 pressure that we have and let us talk uh, from there on. Aleem? This is going to be an interesting, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, issue to follow. And, and I think more importantly, um, we'll continue to set the tone for provincial municipal relationships. There's three years left um, with this, this current government. And uh, I think, um, you know, whether it's an issue like Ontario place, rebuilding the CNE, um, you know, uh, looking at, at the way property taxes are managed, these two governments are going to have to find a way to work together. Uh, Cause at the end of the day, um, they're representing the same person. That was strategist Aleem Kanji and Toronto Budget Chief Councillor Gary Crawford. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How do we stop online extremism? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Paris this past week uh, attending the Christchurch call meeting convened by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who was co-chairing with French President Emmanuel Macron. The meeting was called following the massacre of 51 Muslim worshippers in two New Zealand mosques in March when the gunman live-streamed the shooting on Facebook. Is this the right way to seek a solution? Libby asked that question of our security and terrorism experts Ross McLean and Phil Gursky. Certainly when I used to work at CSIS, the answer is yes. This is a way that you find people who are radicalized in the violence and in the worst case scenario, this is how you find people planning acts of terrorism or, or, or you know, attacks of mass violence. So it is the, the way you find them. Um, I'm not sure the two are mutually exclusive. I think that you can take efforts to remove the most heinous, disgusting stuff, and at the same time not handcuff your, your law enforcement and security intelligence agencies that have a job to do, and that job is to stop bad things from happening. Ross? This is actually a a fairly complicated topic. It's not as simple as good guys and bad guys, because it turns out who's deciding who's the good guy, who the good guys are, and who the bad guys are. So what I find interesting and challenging about what's going on today with our prime minister about to launch off and go sign an accord uh, that says the Canadian government is essentially going to be monitoring uh, Canadians and what they do online and how they do that and what controls are on it, uh, that can go south in a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, the countries he's over there meeting with uh, to sign this with is one of them is France, who, of course, they've already started to launch a shutdown on Facebook and social media for what they consider to be problems because he's having a problem governing over there. The other group that's looking country is looking to sign on, of course, is Theresa May because of all the problems that they're having with Brexit over there, that they don't want the people to be able to get together and talk about Brexit and have the government have control. The other one that's signing on for it is Jordan. And of course, in Jordan, if you say the wrong thing against the king or the monarch, you'll find yourself in jail and they censor books and what goes online. So I think the bigger concern here is what controls would there be? And do you want a political 
party per se controlling access to monitoring what Canadians do online. I think that can go south in a heartbeat. Phil? I would agree with Roth to a certain extent. You know, when it comes to online extremism and hate, it is very subjective. Uh, I often use the example of Judge Potter in the States who says, I don't know what pornography is, but I know, it is, I know what it is when I see it. And I think um, it is devilishly very difficult to define. It's definitely difficult to figure out where that line is. Uh, clearly, you know, live streaming a massacre in a mosque, I think we all agree that should not be available anywhere online. But there's a very fine line between freedom of speech. And this is one reason why, you know, Ross didn't mention this. The, the state is not going to sign on, right? Because the U.S. has very, very strong First Amendment freedom freedoms. And they this is the last thing they want to do is have the government determine what's right and what's not right. So I, I don't know if there's an easy solution to this. And I think we should be very careful at saying there is one. Some of this stuff has to be taken down. But as Ross said, who decides and, and who makes that final call as to, you know, this crosses that line? I'm not sure how you do that because everything that I've read, both by academics and by practitioners and former practitioners around the world, say, as Ross did, this is not an easy job. And, and, and there is no, you know, one size fits all of this. I, I'm all for d- different uh, sources of information. I mean, I work in intelligence. You have to corroborate what you find out from reliable sources. But, I, you know, th- there definitely is a line. And I, I think as Ross and I agree, that line is very difficult to determine. But doing nothing is not an option at this point. And, and yes, this, this, this conference is definitely in the aftermath of what happened in Christchurch. It's in the aftermath of what happened in Sri Lanka. It's in the aftermath of what happened in a, in a mosque in California. Uh, I think people are just saying, you know, enough's enough. And a lot of this garbage and violent hatred is being spread online, and something must be done. Do we have it right? Probably not. Will we ever have it right? I'm not sure. It won't be perfect, but, uh, you know, sitting on our hands is not an option at this point. So governments feel the pressure on, on to do something, and let's just give them a chance to see what they can do. And, and if they do, you know, if they go in the wrong direction, let's push back against them. How effective can it be without the Americans, Ross? This is going to be a challenge. We already have hate laws on the books here in Canada to be able to deal with, and those have to be done with due process, where where a charge is laid against you, you get to go to court, and you get to defend yourself. What we're talking about, though, is putting a government in charge administratively, looking at your speech and keeping records on it. And all I'm saying is that is a very dangerous road to go down when the governments start doing that. Governments have shown themselves to abuse that privilege. I'm not talking, I'm not picking on this one. You can go through the history and look at governments who have abused that privilege of having information on citizens. And I really don't think we want to go there. I think we want to keep with uh, a good legal process on dealing with it, uh, use our hate crimes, but the police also need to start enforcing the hate crimes. They're not really enforcing the hate crimes that exist. Security and terrorism experts Ross McLean and Phil Gursky in conversation with Libby Snymer. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. The opioid crisis is an epidemic claiming thousands of lives across Canada and around the world. Tens of thousands of people who began taking these drugs for pain or an injury have found themselves addicted, and the number of people who die of overdoses is still climbing. New patients are hoping to take on the drug makers in a $1.1 billion lawsuit about their role in the opioid crisis. The proposed class action accuses almost two dozen companies of enriching themselves at the expense of vulnerable patients. 
This comes after a $270 million settlement in the first of a wave of similar lawsuits in the United States. The class action suit in Canada also comes as new data is released showing Toronto paramedics saw nearly twice as many people die of suspected opioid overdoses in the first four months of this year than in the same period in 2018. Joining Libby to discuss, Mike Merriman of Toronto Paramedic Services and one of the lawyers on the Canadian lawsuit, Adam Tunnell of Kosky-Minsky. It's something we've been looking into for quite some time. Obviously, this epidemic uh, has been decades in the making, and uh, we say in the making because it's our position that uh, this crisis was very much a manufactured crisis. Um, and the evidence has, has simply been mounting um, to the point that uh, we're willing to put our time and our money on the line to take on these manufacturers. You have one, what is that called, the, the lead client? The representative plaintiff. Okay, tell me about him. Okay, well, it's Dr. Daryl Gebbian, and he's truly an inspiring uh, person. He was prescribed Percocets for a minor physical injury, as was so often the case across this province and across the country. Uh, And as a result of that prescription for a minor injury, he developed a serious addiction uh, that for a time cost him his medical license. Uh, He ended up in jail. Uh, ended up in all kinds of professional and personal crises. Um, fortunately, he battled through his addiction uh, and has now turned the tide and is now an inspirational speaker uh, and an advocate on behalf of victims' rights. The allegation is that the drug makers knew that this was really addictive. They knew that this is not something that is at all suitable for any kind of prolonged use, and they pushed it that way anyway. Is, is that correct? That's right. That's the allegation. And it even goes further than that. Um, one of the tipping points for us to commence this lawsuit was a 2018 study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed that for many chronic conditions, Opioids were no more effective than non-steroidal anti-inflammatories at treating the conditions. So they weren't actually providing any benefit and were coming with enormous risks that unfortunately have manifested and cost thousands of Canadians' lives. Let's bring in Mike Merriman. So what are you experiencing on the street? The numbers speak for themselves. Uh, We're getting a lot of reports, especially from our downtown station crews down in the core that those members are doing at least, are actually responding, or they're responding to at least three opioid opioid overdose call, overdose calls uh, every day. So that's like a dramatic increase to what we had seen in 2018. Let's face it; I don't believe anybody chooses to be an addict. It's for whatever circumstances in their life. I think there's obviously a lot of underlying mental health issues. From a lot of these patients, we see that from a lot of these patients we deal with, childhood abuse, whatever, or in some cases, basically they were prescribed or maybe over-prescribed prescription narcotics, and unfortunately, they get hooked on them. Um, Again, nobody chooses to be an addict. It could be that uh, there's just not as many, there's not as much access to mental health treatment or facilities out there, but... I don't know. All I know is it's definitely on the rise uh, for the paramedics for the amount of calls we're servicing as a result. This is not a lawsuit about taking fentanyl away from people who absolutely need it. Uh, This is about uh, a system that allowed these drugs and promoted these drugs being prescribed for conditions for which they were not necessary and not even helpful. That's not all conditions. We are not suggesting uh, that 
all drugs are bad for all conditions all the time. Uh, we're simply suggesting that uh, someone who has chronic back pain or a sprained wrist uh, and is prescribed fentanyl or Percocets and that has life-changing implications for them, that that's inappropriate. Whether it come from the province or it come from the municipality, somebody's got to get more paramedics out there for us. When you have, if there were, you know, we had one month, I believe this past April, 400 opioid overdose overdose calls. I mean, if there were 400 house fires in the city or 400 police, or sorry, 400 shootings, they probably invest in more police or firefighters. And it's just not happening with us, uh, with us and we're, we, we just can't keep up anymore. Mike Merriman of Toronto Paramedic Services and lawyer Adam Tunnell of Kosky Minsky. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Just in time for the summer travel season, we're learning that we may soon have one fewer independent airline. Air Canada is in exclusive negotiations to buy the company that owns Air Transat. This comes hot on the heels of the announcement that WestJet has been bought by venture capital company Onyx, and they're going to take it private. The big question, what does this mean for consumers? Libby spoke with travel agent Jack Mendelson. What it would be for the consumer, depending again what's the final outcome, probably less competition or they're going to manage uh, the market uh, to their convenience. The question is, uh, there is still a competition on the WestJet side that is expanding their uh, routings uh, internationally, not just uh, domestic, transporter and Caribbean. So, uh, but those prices could go up too. Why not? Uh, again, nobody wants to lose market share. That's, uh, you know, the load factors, uh, each airline wants to keep them as high as they can because the seat that goes unsold, it's a, it's a loss or it's not, you know, revenue that they profit. So you're not sure it will result in higher ticket prices? Uh, probably at the beginning, not. Once they consolidate the market and they know where they're standing, then probably you won't see that much competition. Uh, you know, we have some new entrants in the market uh, like uh, Flair and other airlines, low-cost and ultra-low-cost carriers in Canada, but uh, they are still not a, a factor in uh, in the business. But you see on the other side, on the western side, they have a Swoop, which is also an ultra-low-cost carrier for them. So there is still competition and they're going to manage it uh, somehow. And uh, we'll have to see how it unfolds uh, with Air Transat and Air Canada. I'm also wondering about service. So Air Canada has about 36,000 employees, 10,000 of them in Quebec, and Air Transat has about 5,000, also mostly in Quebec. To me, that says, "Uh uh-oh, I think jobs are going to be lost here. Hopefully not, uh, because they still have to maintain aircraft and everything. Um, maybe there'll be some attrition, uh, hopefully not, uh, but it's, uh, it's hard to say what their plan is going to be on how it's going to be folded, uh, into the Air Canada uh, camp. Do you find, uh, when you're booking for your customers that prices are higher this summer? Across the Atlantic, going to Europe and beyond. The fares are still in comparison low. You can get a ticket, the base price ticket, 
for three, four hundred dollars. But what makes it more expensive is what the airlines have done for years, the fuel surcharge, that in some cases is eight hundred dollars. So a four or five hundred dollar ticket ends up being twelve, thirteen, fourteen or more. Well, call it a call it the ticket price or a fuel but, surcharge uh, doesn't matter to me. No, no but uh, you know, like the airlines defend themselves and say our fares are low. It's the taxes and the uh, fuel surcharge that we have to charge. Like just an example, the taxes in Great Britain are extremely high. You pay for a regular ticket in, in economy class probably two hundred dollars in all the British uh, taxes. So. That increases the the price dramatically. People watching this a little nervous. Uh, what would you like to leave us with about the possibility of of basically losing a bit of competition? Probably there's going to be less competition if uh, this uh, deal uh, comes uh, through. Uh, no question about it, because even if uh, they leave uh, Air Transat as a standalone uh, subsidiary and taking part of the market, they are going to control the market. No, no question about it. One tip is when you have the time, book in as much time in advance as you can because you are able to get the lowest fares. Now, there's always two ingredients on buying uh, any airfare the advanced purchase on one, and what is available. Because sometimes you want to buy three months in advance, and those seats that day or that time is sold out, so you have to look for some other alternatives. That was travel agent Jack Mendelson. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Greg in Brampton drives for a living and called in to offer his perspective on construction headaches. I'm a limousine driver and we have to bring people in and out of Toronto on a regular basis. And it's just becoming an absolute disaster. We don't have access to get to people. I would really like to know how construction dictates traffic. The King Street project is an absolute disaster for drivers. We got lots of room for plants in the middle of the road, but not being able to get in and pick people up and the way they, they've got the rules set, you know, if we try and do anything differently, then we're going to get a ticket. Jim and Pickering phoned to say he doesn't like the idea of buying beer in convenience stores. I can buy beer and wine, extended hours. This convenience, you buy your beer there, but you have to return your empties to the beer store. So now you have to go to two locations, or what do you do? Just stock them up in the garage? Why can't people, if they know it's busy on a Friday, holiday, weekend, or something, just, you know what, just think about it and do it at a, a different time, you know? Daniel in Toronto is among those who likes the idea of convenience when it comes to buying his beer. I live in Halton Hills. There's only one beer store in Halton Hills. So come Friday night, the lineup is outside the door to pick up beer. Or on a good weekend, people are having barbecues. We're waiting north of an hour to buy beer. Whether or not beer is going to come down in price in the variety store, I highly doubt it. But I think people are going to want to pay a premium for availability and service and longer hours. Two, four, 12 packs, we're probably going to pay more, but at least we can get it when we want. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Diane in Toronto, who thinks the system of relying on property taxes from homeowners to fund Toronto services and programs is unfair and needs to change. Seems every time the city needs money, they go after property tax people. People that have property have to bear the brunt of it, and it's not fair. We all enjoy the services and the benefits of the city. We should all be paying equally. But it's always the property people that have have to bear the cost of it. Mayor Tory has said on several occasions, you know, property tax was never meant to support all these services. And yet every year we get dumped on, and whenever you need the money, we get dumped on. It's just not fair. City has to watch their costs. They have to find some new revenue uh, streams. But it's just not As I say, it's just not fair. Just people that have property, they have to bear the brunt of it. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow for a special live edition of Holiday Monday Fight Back after the noon news. And then again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. 